Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. Got a great stream with a guest I think you're really going to enjoy. Now, Inez Stepman is someone who I have interacted with on Twitter a bunch, but I had never got completely into some of her work. And then I saw an article that she put out here in the recent week, which I thought was really interesting, took a very uh, good tack on kind of what's happening with Elon Musk and Twitter and, and all that uh, that's going on right now. So I wanted to invite her on and kind of have a conversation, maybe learn a little more about her work. She is a uh, podcaster. She's the host of the High Noon podcast, and she's also a policy an analyst. Inez, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the uh, the article that you had here was on Elon Musk and his takeover of Twitter. And a lot of people have focused on the free speech aspect of this, which I think is pretty understandable. I mean, that was Elon's kind of stated goal, or at least one of his major stated goals. Everyone makes the joke about the Babylon Bee getting banned and, and you know that kind of being the domino that leads to the revolution. But I think there there was some truth to that. But the thing that you focused a lot on was not so much the battle for free speech, though I think we'll talk about kind of how these things are connected, but you focused on kind of how Elon is getting the bureaucracy over at Twitter and kind of challenging the preconceptions of many in the tech industry of kind of the support structure you need that kind of reinforces a lot of ideology. Could you go into that a little more? Yeah, um, I, I think the roots of this are really sort of James Burnham style analysis that now seems so prophetic to so many of us um, looking around at how economic, both economic and political power is structured. Um, and so really fundamentally, I think this is a more substantive challenge in some way to the professional managerial class and therefore the ideas um, that they're able to effectuate both through public policy and through private um, economic power, right? So I think the, the free speech, we can get into this, the free speech parameters are set by these people. Like that's the problem. We've always had parameters around um, what was acceptable, considered acceptable free speech, right? It, it was never actually good for your career in America to tattoo a swastika on your forehead and then try to go work at, you know, jet, Dollar General, right? right. Um, this was always bad for you. Um, and I think Michael Knowles has done a good job laying out um, why there always have been some parameters around free speech, uh, even if in America we have very strong legal protections against government interference into free speech. So I, I think these things are all related because the problem is this this political class and this particular sort of professional class that has very, very similar ideas. They mostly agree with each other culturally. They're coming out of the same university system um, that that both uh, reinforces and sometimes introduces those ideas and makes them sort of homogenized. Um, and and the, the real question, I think, for Elon Musk is, is not a political radical, right? I'm under no um, sort of illusion that Elon Musk is our champion of the right, um, the right wing billionaire or whatever it is. Um, but what he is, is a tough boss. And, and what he is, is looking for uh, value from his employees. And I think what he's starting to prove with Twitter is something more dangerous than allowing Kanye West back on to tweet a swastika or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think what he's proving is that a lot of these people who are making very, very good money, um, essentially enforcing political diktat, their jobs are ideologically justified. Um, and he's basically saying, 
you know what? I can take a third of the company who are actually the ones who are producing the value, the enormous value that these American tech companies are producing. Maybe it's coming from a small sector within that, mostly, you know, male, mostly white and Asian, right? P politically correct uh, inconveniences there. Um, and maybe we don't need this entire class of people who are credentialed through the University of Pennsylvania, like Yoel Roth, or, um, you know, through Harvard or through Yale, but don't actually add a lot of substance to the bottom line. Because in the end of the day, there isn't a lot of, um, I think what I wrote in my piece was, you know, this kind of ideological policing doesn't add to the wealth of nations at the end of the day. And it's all kind of this house of cards of BS. And I think calling a lot of like essentially calling uh, out a lot of the fact that this quote unquote value that is making a lot of people real billions, right? <laughs> um, isn't actually resting on, on anything. Um, it, it's an economic house of cards. So that, I think that that might be very, very important. That example might be very, very important, especially as we do go in potentially to a recession and a contraction of the tech sector. Yeah, I think those are really good points because as you uh, started to say at the beginning there, I think you know I'm, I'm not um, the free speech champion. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but I'm I'm not the person uh, who's the free speech absolutist. I think the idea that yeah, there there have always been boundaries. There will always be cultural norms about what you can say and what you can approach, and some of those might even be healthy. But the ones that are being imposed right now are rather artificial and come from, a, like you said, that ideology that that's very harmful and produces a lot of baggage. I really like the phrase you use, the, the Homer Simpson job, right? Like a lot of these people are coming in, they're, they're there to hold a place, they're there to, to tick a box. Uh, their job doesn't, uh, you know, as you say in the piece, it's, it's a, there's a lot of scaffolding a lot of our economy is warped around you know producing make work jobs for these people even though they're not adding anything significant and this creates the elevation of guys like Yul Roth who otherwise wouldn't have any particular value in a, an economy has done some work that you know most people would pay almost no attention to but is instead granted the ability to censor the president of the United States from what we can tell that's an insane amount of uh of power given to someone who otherwise probably wouldn't be very impressive. And that's a very powerful tool of like, you know, uh, political, political patronage. That's something that will pretty much guarantee someone is on your side forever. If you can kind of invert the hierarchy and put people like that at the top and make sure that they have power over like a president of the United States, those people are going to be ride and die for you forever. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really think Yul Roth is just this, sort of quintessential example of someone of this type who's been very, very successful, right? So most of these people are not as successful as Yul Roth. They don't have as high positions in the company. They truly are this professional class, which, by the way, um, Daryl E. Paul, I think, writes fantastically about this. Um, and he's he's pointed out uh, that that the margin for for quote unquote socialism on, on the left has has shrunk, right? So it used to be tax the rich, but what defines the rich is essentially moving with the boundaries of the professional class, right? So uh, now if you have two income household, both making, let's say $200,000, you end up with a $400,000 uh, yearly income for a family, that's now not rich, right? So we're, we're moving mm. the boundaries. It's always that teeny tiny 1%. We want to tax the Elon Musks uh, to death, but the professional class is very, very good at protecting itself from the kind of broad-based taxation, say, in, um, in Sweden 
for example, right, where, where not only the middle class, but the professional class as well is all heavily taxed for the welfare state. Um, I do think that's just like an interesting uh, thing to point out that that this really is the base of the Democratic Party now is this professional class. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think that <laughs> the, the Yul Roth is just this perfect example. What has Yul Roth actually done? We just assume that people like Yul Roth are worth their very, very large paychecks because they have the right credentials. Well, what are those credentials? At this point, they're purely ideological, right? Um, I, I quote in my piece extensively from his LinkedIn account, right, which is just basically his resume. There's nothing on his resume that doesn't have to do exactly with these ideological concerns. And of course, they're very narcissistic and self-referential, right? He, he did his uh, his dissertation basically on his own sex life on Grindr, right? Um, <laughs> and it's not at all clear, and this is why I think Musk is so important, like from from the, the actual capital perspective, from that like CEO C-suite perspective, basically what they've been told is you have to hire a lot of these people and give them great perks and great salaries because they came out of the right universities and because of these like, sort of nebulous um, uh, sort of platitudinal level uh, justifications, right? So it's like, if you don't hire these people, then your employees will not be productive because they won't feel actualized at work. And there are therapeutic justifications as well, right? Um, you you won't if you don't have enough diversity on your staff, then uh, you know you're 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 going to suffer. Your ideas are going to suffer because you won't have the pers different perspectives. And these are all sort of platitudinal. And I think what Elon Musk is doing is essentially saying that might not be true, right? There may be absolutely yeah. no economic value, and in fact, you might have a very fat payroll of people making six figures, not like small salaries, right? Maybe not Yul Roth level level salaries, but six-figure salaries, very nice living, um, and an enormous amount of power to impose their views on, on the rest of the country um, that is, is given to them by that economic might that is really created by a small group of people within the company, most of whom are uninterested in this kind of stuff. Um, so I do think this is, this is perhaps, if he can pull this off, and I think they're going to try everything to make sure he doesn't, um, if he can pull this off, it may not be the free speech fun functions that are the most important. It may just be that example sitting over there to other CEOs saying, you know what? You don't have to be held hostage by these people. You don't have to be held hostage by your professional employees, right? You can actually fire a lot of these people because at the end of the day, only a small percentage of them are actually doing much that's adding to your bottom line. Yeah, and it would be really great to see the uh, the free market pick up a W like that because it's taken quite a lot of L's here recently. So it'd be great if we'd actually saw a free market force uh, work in that way. But I do think you're right that it, it does having this stuff stripped away and still having everything operate fine and actually become more profitable. If even if it doesn't force other CEOs to change their behavior, it truly lays bare kind of the ideological uh, structure of the regime, right? Like, we look at these people. Uh, well, actually, let me ask you this, because I don't know how familiar you are with James Burnham, but uh, you, you did cite him in the piece, so I'm sure you, you're, you're familiar. Um, so if the managerial class is supposed to gain its uh, its indispensability by its ability to operate the bureaucracy, right? Like that's where, that's why bourgeoisie hand over the reins of power to the, the managerial class because they can operate massified structures in a way that the, you know, the, the business owners could not. But it's really interesting that these, that wokeness becomes kind of its own cottage industry, its own sub function of managerial status, 
where at least before the managerial elite were in theory operating a bureaucracy that did produce benefits, right? Like you were actually able to streamline production and pr deliver products and these kind of things. But now the managerial subset has created not a product at all. It, it's just ideological compliance. And so it's interesting that you, you only, it's almost like the managerial elite transitioned over to a Leninist aspect where you're just placing commissars inside your corporation to make sure you have compliance like you would IRS tax compliance. They're not actually operating the functions of the bureaucracy the way that the managerial elite are actually supposed to do in order to gain their status and power. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, there are economic, and as Byrne pointed out, right, there's a reason that we transferred away from um, a kind of wildless capitalism more towards this managerial economy. And that's because it was offering real benefits, right? It, there was a lot of, of uh, problems with it as well. But there was, at, at the end of the day, this was making money. There was a value here. Um, and that's, I think, where we are at a tipping point in that regard where this, this managerial class um, has essentially dealt themselves a huge amount of power in terms of public policy, a huge amount of influence in terms of cultural direction of the country that is very much contrary to what the average or, or, or average citizen, like voting citizen, thinks, right? Um, and at the end of the day, it's very much no longer clear that they are actually even producing anything at the end except for that compliance. And, and so I, I think this is a interesting tipping point we're going to see either we're going to tip over into just the absolute exercise of power right um, where they no longer have to justify the exercise of that ideological power um through any other means because right now i think esg is a really good example actually um esg they have to have right now in in financially right um and legally they have to have this economic explanation for why it doesn't hurt right why mm -hmm. it's actually better to invest in esg funds and um, there's no hurt on your bottom line. In fact, it might be better for your bottom line. And they have all kinds of statistical manipulations to show that that's true. Right. Um, I don't know that it would be as successful without those platitudes. And if those platitudes are convincingly disproven, because that's the thing about this kind of work, right? Um, this kind of professional work, it's not always clear whether somebody is actually producing something of value or not. Right. Because it's not like you get paid one dollar per widget, right, that you're making. And right. at the end of the day, you have a pile of widgets and you get your 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 paycheck. Right. Um, it's not hourly. These are project based. They're somewhat creative. They're non repetitive. Right. These kinds of jobs. There's a lot of room, frankly, for BS in this. And into that BS has essentially stepped this ideology and this ideological, explicitly ideological credentialing. Um, but I think, again, the 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 Twitter counterexample might show that that's all there is there, mm. um, that there isn't that end of the day, um, that actual value being produced. And look, it may take quite a while because America's very rich, right? That's another reason where we can get away with a lot of this stuff. Um, that wealth covers for a lot of garbage, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Either we're going to tip into the direct exercise of power in like sort of a direct Leninist way, right? Where they're going to say, yes, we have this power because we are right and we're going to apply it um, to, to get the results that we want, regardless of any other justifications. But what we have right now is this kind of hybrid thing where, you know, you're doing well by doing good, right? Right. Um, and I think Elon Musk has the potential to disprove the, the doing well part. And we'll see what that ha what happens 
once that that knowledge sort of seeps into the private sector. Yeah, and I think that's a really significant victory. That's why I thought your piece had such a good angle, because so often in the free speech debate, the key everyone thinks is, you know, you just get X amount of people on your side, right? Like you you convince so many people that it's more important to be able to say the truth than it is to, uh, you know, comply with these things and the, the, the scales will tip. But I think what people need to understand is that most people didn't just decide one day to wake up and lie about whether like men could become women or like who's really good at computer programming. I think that those things happen because there's a slow and steady incentive process built into the system that kind of requires people to constantly you know, tell themselves these lies. And if you strip out the patronage, if you strip out the rewards uh, for people, A, parroting this stuff and B, you know, basically having jobs that exist only to run around and punish people for not parroting this stuff then you will see a decent amount of reality reassert itself. And so in many ways, the stripping out of, uh, of these patronage jobs, I think is far more essential to the battle of free speech than the actual ideological debate around like whether the first amendment is an absolute right in private sectors or something. Like, I, I, like while those, those discussions are important, I think people need to understand that like the actual abolition of the apparatus is far more valuable in this battle than like winning the debate club thing about you know whether we should have free speech or not. Yeah, I mean, look, you you get what you incentivize institutionally. You're going to get mm -hmm. more of it. Uh, that that's a fact of human nature. Um, are you going to have dissidents? Yes. Is everybody going to be Solzhenitsyn? No. Right. Um, you only have one or two or a handful, right? Meeting in cafes um, and or or anonymously on the internet. Um, <laughs> no, but you're, you're fundamentally, you're going to get more of what the power structure rewards uh, because people are self-interested. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily like a terrible thing. It just is, right? Um, and yeah, I think you're right that in fact, if you remove the reward structure for a lot of this stuff, um, you'll get a lot less of it. Not none of it. Right? Um, right. You do have your true believers. And there there are, I think, the younger, there's a generational component here. The younger your employees are, the more likely they're true believers in this stuff. Right? Um, because they've been raised in within the, the parameters of the narrative that we currently live under. Um, they don't really, I, I got to say, at some level, they must know that, um, you know, some of these things are not true just because they directly contradict. <laughs> and here, I'm going to use the left, you know, lived experience. Um, yeah. But but on on the other hand, uh, you know, ideology has the the ability to to convince you. I'm not going to use the overused uh, final command of the party that two plus two equals five kind of stuff. Um, but I think it applies here, right? Um, the 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 power of of ideological indoctrination, which is really what it is for for like the lower half of millennials and Gen Z, right? They're really born into this, um, where basically since kindergarten this is largely what's being taught some version yeah. of this has been taught um, by all official organs that are given any kind of honors in society right if you are a good student you know this stuff very well right um if you do well in life you know these the stuff very well but yes it is inseparable from that reward and that path to the good life um and and that path to both money and power but also honors and um, societal sort of approval and, um, and status.
right? So all of these things are, are very important to people as they as they should be. Um, I do think actually what you're referring to is the, the winning the debate argument. I also think that's generational. I think what we're seeing is the last defections from Gen X, right? The people who are center or even left on the left um, in the 90s, right? Uh, Elon Musk probably falls into this category, right? You have a lot of like these Gen X folks who just weren't fully indoctrinated, um, but they were, they're not conservative. They're just sort of not of the new left. Um, and you're they're seeing neocons, accelerated. Yeah. yeah, like like you're seeing an accelerated move of these people out of the left because they're right. It has nothing to do with the ideas that they believed in. Um, although they're, re they're related, actually, I wouldn't say nothing to do, but um, that's a, a topic for another day. But um, fundamentally, I just, I think we're seeing the, the last defections of a generation that wasn't fully indoctrinated. And that gives people, I think, a false sense of security because they feel like everyone around them is starting to wake up to this stuff but they're not factoring in the, the the new rank of graduates every year into every single one of these powerful institutions. Um, and those those people are not questioning whether we're going too far with wokeness. They're on the leading edge. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if, if like uh, the woke language started to separate by tier of university, right? So like if, <laughs> if you went to Harvard, you know um, that certain words are, are no longer acceptable versus if you went to Brown, you might not know that, right? Like it might yeah. literally class stratify like accents in the UK, you know what I mean? Um, be able to tell what school someone went to by what set of woke languages um, they use. But uh, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but um, I, I don't I mean, think it is at all, honestly. No, I think we already see this, right? Like we, we already see wokeness as a way to to you know settle like internecine you know uh disputes inside the left and they're already using it to stratify you know you it was okay to be progressive but now you need to start stacking modifiers so if you're a white guy in tech you better figure out how to get i don't know you know trans or you better figure out how to become you know two-spirit or something like you you need to figure out some kind of ideological niche in order to make sure that you stratify yourself away from the untouchables. And so I, I think that you're only going to see that purity spiral, spiral increase. I think there's a high likelihood that being on the bleeding edge of wokeness will continue to be, you know, a, a, the, the code switching, the jargon rearrangement will continue until they can make sure that they're, they're very safe kind of in the, in that pattern. Uh, so, so I, I think, I don't think that's a, a ridiculous thing to, to kind of believe, but I do think it's a really important point about conservatives and just those who oppose progressives, not understanding the gen like what's coming up behind them. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in, in the abolition of men talks about how once you have a entire generation that's completely socially, socially engineered away from basically all human instincts, that will be the ab abolition of man. Like there will no longer be kind of the natural ties to what made humans human. You won't have that instinct to to return back to the kind of the things that made you whole. And people don't understand that while, like you said, that the Gen Xers, the kind of the final, def, uh, the kind of final defections of those who still had a way back to kind of that existence that uh, was there before the woke indoctrination, as that kind of falls away, the next generation just does not have that built in. They don't have those instincts. They have swam in the waters of deep progressive ideological uh, indoctrination their entire lives. And so there isn't this innate pull back to the truth and, and kind of the, the natural uh, beauty of human existence. So 
I think that is a huge issue for people because this is something I keep trying to explain to those that are like for, you know, the, the, the pure free speech crowd, the people who think that, well, if we can just get the ideological uh, stuff out of there, if we can just get people back to it, like a safe and neutral application of policies and rules, everything will be fine. But one of the reasons that like stripping out the bureaucracy is so important is that at the end of the day, it's not really about the rules. It's about who decides on the rules, right? Like at the end of the day, you can change the the technical terms of the Twitter, you know, uh, censorship agreements. You can change the user policies. You can clarify the procedures. But the people operating them at the end of the day are the ones that actually make the decisions. And if it's full of woke commissars, it doesn't really matter if you clarify that language and try to provide some level of, uh, you know, some some level of uh, accountability. These people are ultimately going to be able to manipulate the procedure in the way that will always produce the outcome they're hoping for. Yeah, this is this is also why I think um, so some of the conservatives who are calling for essentially the application of the tactics um, to some degree of the left. Um, sometimes I think that's a good idea. Um, sometimes I think it's really naive. Uh, and and in, in regard, especially, so like they imagine that they can call like a couple of these bureaucrats to the carpet, right? Um, and we can get rid of uh, certain, like, for example, within the FBI, right? Like we can fire a couple people at the top. Um, they imagine that it's, it is like fundamentally still, that power is still flowing through the natural ways or, or not natural, but the, the American system, right? And, and the, the reality formal is, systems, yeah. yeah, the formal system. And the reality is those rules will not be applied, right? You can, you can tell the DOJ to go after their own. They're going to do that in a very different way. And they're going to slow walk it and maybe you'll get a scalp or two out of it, but you're not going to fundamentally change the institution until you change the incentive structure, which is why I, I think one of the most important things is to be able to do mass firing in federal government um, and to be able to, to put federal employees at will uh, as opposed to, I mean, we have about 110 years at this point. Um, uh, actually, let me see. First, the first civil service you can say the Pendleton Act in 1883. I mean, um, we have this very thick web of essentially job protections for federal employees that protect them, um, not only from being fired, but also like there's very little you can do to them, right? You can kind of move them into a different department, um, which is usually like a lateral move. You really can't even promote on the basis of, of well, merit for one, but also uh, whether or not they're actually carrying out the objectives of the elected officials. So something systemic has to actually shift so that we can actually go into these departments and effect policy change. Because I think the clearest example is the Trump administration and, and people, I, I really get annoyed when both the left and like the sort of whatever you can call it, the David French right say, well, oh, like the head of the, the FBI, that Trump appointed, it's a Trump FBI, right? Like, so how can you say that they were going after the right? Well, because the rest of the FBI is not controlled by the president. Mm -hmm. um, none of these agencies are actually controlled by the president. This is very obvious. Um, and for most of the people making those arguments, they know it, right? <laughs> they know that these executive agencies um, and the administrative state is effectively an arm of the Democratic Party. It's effectively a neoliberal uh, position. Now, if you had somebody like Bernie Sanders on the left, the bureaucracies might fight him too. Um, it's possible. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Sanders fan, obviously, but like it, his particular brand, or at least before he sort of walked his way back into the neoliberal fold, um, he might also have 
trouble implementing some of his policies. But for the most part, the bureaucracy hums happily going after the, the enemies of, of the left, right? Um, it will not hum easily for us. Even if we tried to use the same tactics, if we tried to direct the FBI to, you know, uh, do some of the horrible things that it's done to Donald Trump, to the, the for example, to Biden, so to investigate Hunter Biden or whatever it is, it won't work for us because we don't fundamentally control these institutions and this professional class is overwhelmingly one direction. So 95% of the donations from federal employees uh, in 2016 went to Hillary Clinton, right? So yep. it's like a faculty lounge. It's like trying to implement your policy in a faculty lounge. Like you're not going to get very far. I did want to make two points to, because I think you made a good point about like swimming in the ether when you're young mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um, you don't really know anything outside of this indoctrination. I think there is an element of hyper novelty in tech here as well that makes a lot of this stuff seem, it makes the, the hard barriers of reality a little softer, right? Yeah. Um, if, if your primary identity is digital, uh, it becomes much more, and I'm not the first person to observe that there's a connection between transgenderism and transhumanism, right? Um, or that primary identity online. But I think it's much easier to imagine that certain things could be true than even 20 years ago, right? Um, and then the other thing is, <laughs> Look, things that, that are contrary to reality will eventually come to a hard stop. Um, it's true that, what, what is the Horace quote? Like, you can chase nature out with a pitchfork and yet she keeps hurrying back. Like, uh, human nature will reassert itself and some boundaries of reality will reassert itself. But you can isolate yourself with tech and money for a very long time. And that's not really a comfort to me as I don't intend to live 500 years. Okay, <laughs> the USSR lasted almost 100 Okay, like this is not this is this, this may be a comfort in sort of the the theological sense or whatever theological sense, but it's it's not an actual comfort for us right here because our generation, our children's generation, and perhaps our grandchildren's generation will could potentially live under a, a system that is tyrannical and contrary to any boundaries of, of reality. Like that's totally possible. We could isolate ourselves in that way from the consequences of reality for a hundred years. Yeah, and I think that's really, you know, a lot of people kind of in my sphere will have this, uh, well, everything will inevitably come around, right? Eventually the wheel will turn and reality will reassert itself and, you know, things will crumble. And I think that's true. I think, you know, you're, you're exactly right to point out that those things will will happen inevitably. But yeah, we can we can put that off for a long time, especially as a nation, like you, like that's one of the things I liked in the piece, you point out how much of our GDP is dedicated to ignoring reality. Right. Like the, the how how large our economy, how much of our economy, how big a percentage of what we do is basically there to simply deny, you know, the, the truth, the, you know, natural truths that and keep them from reasserting themselves. And as we get further and further into this, as we create more and more of these systems and make more and more of our we dedicate more and more of our brightest minds or and even our mid tier minds into the maintenance of systems that completely deny reality the less likely we are to do anything of importance and the worse life is is probably going to get for a lot of people. I think you're also right that, that things like tech will lead people into this mindset far more easily. This is Pareto's uh, 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 type one uh, res residues where like th these are the people who are best at combinations and, and recreating boundaries. They don't have a lot of 
they don't have a lot of respect for established forms, that kind of thing. And these are the people who are always going to predominate in classes like tech or entertainment. Creative endeavors are going to be dominated by these people. So it is easy to live in that in that land for a very long time. But I think that kind of brings us to, a, to another aspect of this, something that you mentioned at the beginning with Musk and kind of his his reassertion of reality onto his company, right? When he cuts a large chunk of his company, many people uh, like yourself notice uh, that he left a lot of uh, men, especially white and Asian men, right? In in, in the Ask company. Those, yeah. Yeah. Th those are the people who he identified as those that are essential to the operation of the company. That's a big problem for our society, not just for people on the left, but for people on the right as well, right? Like, there are a lot of people, I think, who are really uncomfortable with what happens if a business does address its staffing to optimize its output, to increase the, you know, uh, its ability to run on a smaller staff. And the truth is, a lot of these make work jobs also create, you know, uh, jobs for favored classes, those that have been enshrined in our you know, society as those that have to be put into these positions, even if they are not going to routinely achieve those kind of positions on their own. And I think that's a really uncomfortable thing for a lot of people. And I think it's something that will probably keep a lot of CEOs from following uh, Elon Musk's lead, because even if he does pull this off for a while, eventually you can't imagine, you know, lawsuits and social pressure are going to come. I don't think a large chunk of corporate America is going to be okay with drastically changing the demographics of their companies uh, after all of kind of the propaganda and other possible, you know, uh, lawsuits that they might open themselves up to if they do this. Yeah, I was, I was going to say it's not just propaganda, right? It's, it's the law. It's baked um, in, yeah. It's civil rights law. So let's let's separate these these two things. Um, they're not totally separable, but uh, there's sex and then there's race, right? Um, sure. And on, on with regard to sex, I think it's pretty clear uh, that one of the unpredicted consequences of, of sort of our managerial shift that Burnham wrote about is that um, in large part, this class is sexed, right? It's women. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there are plenty of men that fall into this category, of course, um, but I, I'm saying overall, uh, it, <laughs> it seems like uh, the, the boot stomping on, on the, the human face forever is, is more of a like, you know, sensible kitten heel or something. But um, in any case, it is a sex class, right? Women predominate these kinds of jobs. Um, and we write about this all the time. Uh, even even the center left or some folks at AEI, right? We write about this as, as uh, in an economic sense when manufacturing, uh, direct manufacturing declines, right? And the so-called service economies, um, or service industries or whatever are on the rise. These are largely managerial jobs. For example, health administration, right? Um, knowing what co how to code things so that you can bill Medicare, like that's an overwhelmingly female job. Um, so so that's that's one aspect of this. Um, in, in both cases, the race and the sex case, you have enormous incentives in civil rights law, right? Um, and I really think, and, and I've, I've heard that Chris Caldwell is uh, working on an update to this uh, because he, he recognizes this deficit. He just didn't get to it um, mm. in his book. But I really do think the changes in the 90s are underrated um, in terms mm. of our civil rights law and the incentives they created. Uh, I don't think we had nearly as big of this kind of problem. And in fact, I kind of disagree at least on the edges with Chris Caldwell's book um in that I think a lot 
a small percentage of the changes that he is observing rightly today, I think came between 1964 and the 1990s. And a large percentage of those changes came after the 1990s. Well, why is that? Well, we did, a, we made a couple key changes uh, in the 90s signed by H.W. Bush, of course, who I must say initially resisted doing this. Um, but there were sort of several rounds of this bill and his party had voted for it. And, and he, he kind of, he, he uh, capitulated and signed the bill. Um, so two of those major changes, uh, one, no cap, I mean, vastly expanded cap on the kind of damages, right, that, that you can sue uh, for it, this kind of like workplace discrimination, right? Uh, there, there were pretty strict caps on it. Um, there was a limit to what essentially the aggrieved employee could collect from, from his company. That limit was vastly extended, right? So it became a much more painful uh, tool to use against companies. But even more important is, um, and this came in the in the sex, sexual harassment context first and moved into the race context. Um, as far as I know, I had a check with my colleague, Jennifer Braceras, who's really, um, she, she did employment law. Uh, so she's, she's really an expert in this stuff. Um, but uh, so I think it moved from sexual harassment and sex case into the racial case. Um, but basically the offense, legally speaking, I'm not now talking about although they're related, the, the, the sort of uh, emotional offense, but mm. the offense doesn't have to be, it used to have to be objectively offensive, sustained um, over time and like basically endorsed by the company, right? So you couldn't sue your company for sexual harassment as opposed to the particular person. You could not sue the company for sexual harassment because one guy was repeatedly asking you out like a colleague or whatever it is, right? Um, now, after the 90s, you, you can. Um, and more than that, you can, you can sue for hostile workplace environment or for discrimination um, if one guy has a bikini calendar on his desk and another coworker made an off-colored joke one time, right? Um, and you said something to HR one time and nothing came of it, right? Like you, you, can, you can cobble together a lawsuit and over a series of like offenses that have nothing to do with each other. And, and they may be very, very minor. Right. Um, and mm -hmm. still collect a huge settlement. That gives companies exactly an incentive to make sure that no one could possibly be offended. Right. No person, no single employee, it makes an eggshell skull kind of rule for everybody. Right. Like if a single employee is offended by anything, if, if they can actually cobble together a lawsuit from all these things and the dollar amounts rewards are, are quite high. So companies became very afraid of this and they start, this is when all this kind of um, trainings, like workplace training started to take off, right? The sexual harassment trainings, the, the very funny ones that like, you put in with the CD-ROM, right? In the nineties. Um, but that has melded, I think in a particularly tyrannical way with the advancement of sort of therapeutic culture and with um, the, the ideological strictness with with microaggressions, with blah, 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 right? So I, I really think we're underrating how much of this happened in the 90s and the enormous financial incentives that corporations had to make sure that nobody could possibly be offended at work. Yeah, I think you're right that a lot of that accelerated in the 90s, but I, I, I would side with Caldwell saying that the groundwork was all there beforehand, the, the infrastructure both legally and culturally required to allow kind of that expansion needed to be there before we saw it take off. I think you're right that the 
the acceleration really happens there. I mean, well, then then let me ask you this. What are the forces of the 90s that you think brings that upon uh, upon the culture? I We have a lot of people, you know, who, who uh, kind of do Breitbart's famous, uh, you know, culture is downstream from politics. A lot of us around here prefer to say that culture is downstream from power. Uh, what do you think brings about those? Why is the 90s this crucial hinge in, in the switch? So first of all, um, I, I always have to defend Breitbart because I was um, I was there when he was making those remarks and mm -hmm. I knew him a little bit, although not super well. Um, he wasn't saying what the people who repeat that quote today were saying. Actually, I think he was very prophetic. Imagine, you know, in 2012, what he was saying was, we need to pay attention politically to cultural issues. Because sure. in 2012, it was very much that autopsy, right? The minute, like, we need to move away from these divisive cultural issues and focus on cutting taxes. And what yeah. he was saying with that line is, good luck cutting your taxes. There's a five alarm fire in our culture um, and you need to pay attention to it. He wasn't foreclosing political action on cultural issues. He was actually encouraging it. So I think yeah, very fair. Yeah. He, is, he is misread in that way. But that being said, I know exactly what you meant. There's a lot of people who use that, um, that phrase to say essentially that we need only to to um to have cultural solutions to these problems the, the solutions can't be political they can't be legal right? right they have to be cultural in some nebulous way and and with that i, I certainly disagree and in fact um reagan uh, in his farewell speech uh at, at the end of his farewell speech he points to this problem right and and gives the only answer that was available uh in, in 19 in the 1980s right in the late 1980s um but he says we our, our spirit is back. Um, one of the things he's most proud of during his presidency is that he's revived the American spirit, by which he means is kind of like cultural patriotism. Um, but we haven't reinstitutionalized it, is what he said. And he goes into this long piece of his speech where he talks about when he was growing up, that if your family didn't reinforce these values, first of all, most people's families reinforce these values at home. Um, but if you didn't get it from your family, then you got it from school because in school they were teaching these values. And if if you weren't a very good student, then you could get a watered down version by watching TV. And the pop culture was actually like in alignment with these values. And he's saying none of these things are true anymore. Um, and that's a problem. But he he ends and he said actually not a problem. This is the biggest problem um, for our country and its future. However, he ends he ends it by saying, well, I guess we're just going to have to discuss it around our dinner tables. And I think from the vantage point, no no shade on Reagan at the time, um, but I think from the vantage point of 2023 now, uh, that's clearly inadequate, yeah. right? Um, th this power is institutionalized, as we've been talking about. It's it's applied through our laws very directly. Um, and it has enormous shifts on what, you know, the, the folks who repeat that quote from Breitbart mean by culture, right? I mean, just look at that same-sex marriage. It's an unbelievable shift. Transgender issues is going to be just as fast, right? Um, right now, we feel like we have the cultural upper hand and there's a majority against it, but these institutional incentives do their jobs. Indoctrination works and incentives work. Yeah, I guarantee I, I would, you in yeah. 10 years, those polls are going to look very, very different, maybe even five years. Yeah, it's foolish to think that conservatives have the upper hand on this. It's absolutely insane. Uh, you know, that that's not what's being taught in schools. That's not that's not the culture that's being forced on the kids. They they know they know what they have to say. They know what they have to uh affirm and there's no way 
that in you know five to ten years the the next round of graduates that come out of uh, universities and inherit those managerial positions are going to be anything but even more insanely radical on this stuff so yeah i think it's really really important for people to to not pretend that there's there's some kind of silent majority and again that the uh, reality may eventually assert itself nature may eventually uh, make itself clear, but I think uh, there, there's a long space between now and when that actually comes. So this might be a difference between us, actually. I think there okay. is a silent majority, um, okay. but I think that silent majority is closing, right? So um, I, I think, again, this is very generational. And as long as boomers and Gen X are uh, still active voters, and by that I don't, yeah, anyway, um, and and more importantly, like Gen X is coming to, into its own. And I'm I'm a millennial, but I'm like a fan of Gen X. Um, as Gen X is coming into its own, it, you know, Gen X is going to be the C-suite. Um, we're going to have more Gen X politicians, and I think you can see a notable difference, for example, between Trump and DeSantis, um, in terms of, but but not just DeSantis. Like there there's a whole crop of um, Josh Hawley, um, Tom Cotton. Um, I, I think there you'll see a big difference, and I think we'll have a lot of people in the Republican party who are Gen X. Like I think Gen X is going to swing quite heavily for the Republican party in the, in the foreseeable future and change what that party stands for. Um, so I think this is largely generational, but I think that gap is closing, right? If we wait until millennials and it's not that far from now, right? Um, the oldest millennials are just cresting 40, I think. Um, you know, if, if we wait too much longer, like I really do think this, this is essentially a, a very important to, to, seven years. Um, and we're going to see whether these processes of, of democracy, um, this is the, what you're skeptical of, uh, <laughs> the, the process of democracy may actually still function. Cause I do think there's a silent majority out there right now. Um, I don't think in 10 years we'll have a silent majority. And I think that that is because again, um, all the issues we're talking about, the incentive structure is incredibly powerful. Um, so I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a, a revolt um, and then we'll see whether essentially the political power structures that exist and the managerial structures that exist crumble in the face of that revolt or just become more naked in exercising power. Like we'll, we'll move to a more explicit um, kind of tyranny than we, we have now. And I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I still think it's a question. Yeah, fair enough. I, as, as you noted, I'm, you know, uh, less bullish on the prospects of, of that coming around. I think if if the last 50 some years of shift don't really convince you that the public is in almost entirely malleable and that they're going to be able to produce increasingly um, consistent results, uh, I guess, in the democratic process, I don't I don't know. But like you said, the, the crucible will come in the next 10 years one way or another. I think I think that's right. Well, do you I, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the the speaker uh, throwdown? Is that is that too, I don't know. It feels boring to me. But do, do you do you want to get into? Do you have a a thought on the on the drama on the GOP speaker battle right now? Um, a little bit of one, which is that I think it's largely unimportant to the country. Um, yeah. so I guess that's the, uh, you know, I I hmm. do I think it's so. I think the underlying division is very important. I think we've seen it bubble up um, in the Republican Party repeatedly over the years. Um, I sort of first joined politics during the Tea Party. Uh, I was a member of the 
several different Tea Party groups, um, sort of grassroots groups, and so on. Um, I, and and fundamentally, there's a there's a huge disconnect between the leadership and the, of the Republican Party and the voters. Um, and I think much more than there's a disconnect between Democrats and the Democratic Party. Um, and in fact, when people say that that Democrats don't represent um, sort of left wing interests, I think they are just underestimating or over, rather overestimating how many voting Democrats actually agree with some of this cultural stuff mm -hmm. um, or whether it's important to them. So I think the Democratic Party actually does a quite good job uh, representing the interests of their voters, not a perfect one, but a decent one. The Republican Party, there's a total disjoint there. And there has been for a long time. I mean, the first spike of this was Newt Gingrich in the um, in the 2012 primaries, uh, I think, going after the media. He was like really the, one of the first person uh, in, in the Republican Party to like really start to go after the media. And he got a huge spike of, of voters. Now, he didn't end up taking the nomination. Romney did. But um he got a huge spike of voters and it was very clearly his like finest moment in the primary. And, and I'm not saying Newt Gingrich is some kind of like anti-establishment figure, but he was the first to like basically directly take on the media and say like, you you know, why should we give you the time of the day? Uh, we know you hate us. You hate like the average American. That was a very popular message. The Tea Party also, I think, is misunderstood as purely about economic issues. That is not the Tea Party that I participated in. Um, there's this cultural anxiety that fundamentally the leadership and the ruling class in this country uh, is taking it in a direction that is fundamentally different uh, than than the American way of life or the traditional American way of life. Um, and then, of course, we had the, the Trump rebellion in 2016, right? I think these are all manifestations, and to some degree, this speaker fight is as well, although it's not clear to me that the replacement will be that much better. Yeah, that's the right? big problem. So that, that's really what makes me kind of eh about this fight. Like, if we were talking about putting in somebody um, who is much more in line with with Republican voters, then I would think this is actually of utmost importance. Um, but perhaps the fight itself is important in the sense that extracting a pound of flesh from leadership, I think, is itself a good lesson. Um, I also don't think like McCarthy wasn't the biggest problem. McConnell was the bigger problem. McCarthy is just obviously a non-ideological guy. He's not like on fire about any of these issues, but he did seem more willing to actually do the traditional job of speaker, which is wrangle coalitions, right? Um, he wasn't totally ignoring conservatives. He was sitting down with them and trying to work on their concerns and so on. And sometimes they won and sometimes they lost. And he certainly wasn't one of our guys, but McConnell actively, McConnell would rather work with a democratic majority and be in the minority then have the kind of Republicans that disagree with him elected. And that's yeah. not an acceptable thing for a party head, right? Like <laughs> the least we can expect of our leadership should be that they're partisan. <laughs> He's not even strictly partisan. Yeah, I think the the pound of flesh from your leadership being the takeaway is probably the right one here. Again, uh, not, not here to endorse this, you know, uh, democracy, but if you're going to do, if you're going to play this game, the Republican base has to learn to actually make their politicians deliver something for them. And, you know, not to run through the laundry list of embarrassing mainstream pundits who are doing this today, but like pretending that looking slightly disorganized while you force people in your party to actually care about what you want is more clownish than continually feeding the Democrats every single thing they want without almost any resistance is is insane. It's absolutely insane. I, I really have a hard time understanding 
like the the appearance of unity is would be great if the Republican Party had any interest in actually serving its base, right. but they don't. And so telling me that that unity is more important than forcing these people to the table and making them give you something is just absolutely ridiculous. But I wondered this, uh, you know, and there's there's many reasons why this happens, but I wonder if, if this is one of them. The ideological underpinning of government, of like the role government should play, I think is a big part of this because Democrats, because they have no problem with the exercise of government power, are more than happy to offer their constituents like material benefit. Like vote for me, there will be more money in your pocket. Vote for me and you will have a job. Vote for me and I will ensure that, you know, healthcare, college, whatever, like these things will be delivered unto you. And even if they aren't perfectly done, like you said, the Democrats, at least on a pretty regular basis, provide some kind of actual material benefit for their uh, for their voters. The Republican Party's idea is small government. We don't do anything. And so we don't. So when they're in power, they don't build anything that benefits their voters. They don't do anything that actually increases their material prosperity. They just don't do anything. And they, they certainly don't punish their enemies. You know, that's the, something the left is very good at when they're in power. And so the left is just constantly ratcheting things because whenever they're in power, they are allowed the free hand to generate incentives for people to vote for them and to increase their power inside institutions. And the right is basically ideologically opposed to doing any of those things. And so they seem to lose the game over and over again. You know, I so I, I agree largely um, with what you're saying. And I think what you're pointing to is, is actually... <laughs> The professionalization of political benefit and patronage um, has been a disaster. I, I, um, have, I, I'm a proponent of the spoil system, right? Uh, I think that the 19th century spoil system was far more democratic and responsive to the will of the people, even as it generated a certain level of corruption, um, than the professionalization of the civil service. Because um, a lot of those benefits that you're talking about, and, and look no further, by the way, uh, than student loan forgiveness, right? Which is a direct yeah. handout to a democratic, key democratic party constituency, right? Mm -hmm. Literally, we're going to write you a check. Um, I I think a lot of that is, first of all, implemented through the administrative state. A relatively small percentage of it is actually passed through Congress. So if you think about what the democratic party does um, in terms of elected officials, I think they're far less efficient at that game uh, than the administrative state is, right? There are literally millions of grants half the NGOs, I mean, I've been pointing out for a long time that the Republican side is essentially privately funded and all of the mess, whether it is called private or not, um, on the Democratic Party is heavily funded by the government. Universities depend as lifeblood on student loan programs funded by the government. They also get trillions in grants. Okay. Um, you know, just, just about anything you can think of. Every NGO has like six different grants from from all three levels of government, municipal, state, and federal, right? Um, Republican or conservative organizations do not have any of that. Um, we're fighting on a completely uneven playing field, uh, particularly since the right has lost big business, right? Because there was some parity uh, when big business was essentially funding the right um, and the left was funded by government, right? But there, there's no parity at all now because big business is funding the left. Um, so that's that's one point. So I agree with you on that, uh, that, that we need to develop. Um, in some cases, the only consistent 
patronage network um, on the right that I can think of uh, is one that perhaps has yielded, again, very little benefit for the country, sadly. Um, but I think the professional right, uh, we're really good at identifying talented young people, um, giving them fellowships, paying them a comfortable salary to be able to do. We do this in the world of ideas. So we have found a way to duplicate the kind of patronage style part of universities, but absolutely not the pipeline into power, right? Uh, the mm -hmm. graduates of, of think tank fellowships don't go on to rule the DOJ. Um, so that that link into power, that that last piece has not happened. Um, but more, more broadly about the chaos point, it really feels increasingly, and I, I've read, I feel like a thousand different takes from a thousand different people, actually pretty far range of the political spectrum, um, that something feels fundamentally broken in every aspect of not just American life, but even sort of in the West more broadly. Um, and I think that chaos is just not reflected so directly um, and people call us whatever, doomers, crazy, whatever, um, because that chaos is papered over by an enormous amount of wealth. Uh, and so I tend to think chaos reflected in our political institutions is a good thing insofar as it's reflecting the underlying chaos, right? Like you can't get less accountable for chaos than losing a war and getting promoted. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I would like to see those people get fired. I would like to see some chaos. I would like to see our political representatives fighting over these matters instead of pretending that everything is fine under the surface because we have so much money that we're some we're able to lose a war in Afghanistan, right? And not suffer immediate massive consequences of that, um, except the people who fight it right? Which is a, a half a percent of people who are in the military connected to, to military, right? But for most of us, we didn't feel the consequences of losing a war because we are so rich. That wealth won't perpetuate. And that's maybe to like tie it back to the Elon Musk thing, right? That wealth is not the natural state of the universe. <laughs> okay. We are going to lose that wealth over time if we squander it, and if a third of our GDP or more is just ideological compliance, that doesn't generate the kind of wealth that has allowed us to ignore reality and ignore the fundamental brokenness and chaos that we're living in. Um, so, I mean, again, this could happen tomorrow or it could happen in a hundred years. It matters very, very much when. Um, so I, it's not meant to be like sort of a Zen thing, like things will work out. Um, and also, you know, things working out might just be that we are just conquered by some other people, right, <laughs> who don't buy into some of this stuff and just continue to raise warriors and live in a more, like, tangible economy. Um, but so it's not really meant to be a comfort so much as a warning that maybe this, this Musk example is that important because <laughs> that wealth is dependent on things that we no longer do or at least a large percentage of our society no longer does. And that cannot go on forever. So I don't know, yeah, again, not, not, not necessarily a white pill because it's like, <laughs> it could get much worse from here, but that, that kind of, um, that idea that we should have unity or we shouldn't have even like the kind of chaos over a, a speaker of the house battle, um, is, is completely naive, right? Like I'm glad to see the cracks appearing 
somewhat because the that the faster we're going to have to actually deal what's with what's underneath. Yeah, that that's very right. Uh, I, I'm a hundred percent. You know, uh, Dan Crenshaw was uh, saying, uh, it, you know, anybody who's not for uh, Speaker McCarthy, they're just an enemy now. And it's like, yeah, the faster we can get Republican uh, establishment guys to just declare each other enemies and like and and, and openly uh, dismiss the interests of their voters and, and just continue to show that that conceit, I think that's really essential. Like, uh, you know. If the GP, if the GOP is going to be of any value, it can only be of value after it's basically deconstructed itself pretty fundamentally. Uh, and I think the the more often that can happen, uh, the better. Uh, but that said, we have hit an hour, and I barely got into like half the stuff I wanted to, to get. But but I think it's a good conversation. Uh, we've got some uh, some questions like from all, the audience. Like all if women, you don't I mind. love to hear the sound of my own voice. Uh, well, yeah, there you go. So that that's why we're in the business, right? All right. So um, I've got some questions from the audience here, if you don't mind, run through these real quick before we go. Uh, let's see here. Uh, we've got QuartzZZ7, uh, $10 Canadian. Thank you very much. Debate shows and academic debates gained popularity in 2009 uh, to 2014 as millennials came of age. Does this indicate a want uh, of millennials? Maybe Gen X influence also love your authory name, uh, Ina Stepman. Uh, so yeah, that's interesting. We had, uh, it feels like this was, there was, uh, maybe this is part of the new atheist time or no, maybe this was lightly after, but it feels like there was a, there was an obsession with kind of, you know, having these debate shows, facts and logic, you know, the, the, like the, there was a far more interest in this during that time. Do you think that's a, there's a general ration, generational difference there, a shift that maybe brought that upon us? Um, it might be generational and it, it also might be just the, I think this is more clear in art actually than in, hmm. I think maybe it's a, a function of the same impulse, but what we're seeing now is again, I do think it's largely like Gen X and older millennials who are, are driving this, but um, the, the institutions that produce this culture, right? They are becoming so incredibly boring um, that you have a certain amount of, and I think it's always going to be a relatively small percentage of people who are just like, I cannot listen to this anymore. Even, even if they sort of f agree with the fundamentals, it's just, it's just boring in the same way that woke Hollywood, like the really formulaic woke movies always fail. The real power of the cultural left is when they manage to work in, you know, a left-wing theme or two into a very like interesting character-driven story. And when they, they go to these like sort of woke like direct woke, like sort of um, propaganda films, they mm. fail, right? Because it's not interesting. And right. and I think that's that might be part of this, right? I, I think there was a, a sort of, an, and the move into podcasting and long form media is very much, I think it's a very hopeful thing. Um, I, I think uh, it's a good thing that people are bored with what seems like the same talking points and like tomatoes being thrown back and forth. Um, I do think that's a good thing. I do think there is some minority of people. Clearly, there are literally millions of people who want to listen to Joe Rogan for three hours. And all he yeah. is is intellectually curious, right? Like, that's mm -hmm. that's it. Like, I'm not a huge Rogan um, listener. I do listen from time to time. But all his great strength is obviously that he's just genuinely intellectually curious. And I do think there's a certain percentage of people who just crave that after the kind of incredibly wrote even if they don't have deep ideological objections they're just sick of it because it's boring 
Yeah. So. Have you seen the meme where it's uh, Joe Rogan is like a barbarian king? He just brings the 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 wise man before him and says, "Smart man, tell me why the water falls from the sky." You know, like <laughs> just just him doing that routine. Thing, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it, it's very it's very effective. I think a big part of that is also found time. Um, the the fact that our society has moved to, uh, you know, you have the technology where you don't have to sit down in front of the TV and dedicate thirty minutes or an hour to watching a news program means that people don't have to have everything condensed into sound bikes so they can move on to something. The fact that you can mow the lawn or lift weights or, you know, do laundry or drive and get all this stuff, I think facilitates people's ability to listen to those, those longer conversations. And the fact that the audience is fractured, right? You don't have, it doesn't have to be talk radio. It doesn't have to be top 40. You don't have to appeal to, Every single person driving, you need to appeal to a specific subset of people who in drive time traffic want to learn more about the French Revolution or something like that. You know, like, I think that that really facilitates that as well and why people are they're they're far more demand for long form than there was before. But that, I do that's, think it that's totally true. And that rings true to me personally. Like, I am a huge proponent of the audio revolution because I mm -hmm. listen to a lot of this stuff, not just podcasting, but books and um, and why exactly what you're saying while I do other things, right? While, while I'm working out, while I'm doing chores, while I'm and it really um, has been an enormous, wonderful thing in my life. Like I've learned a lot. I, I feel like, um, so I, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of, of those things. Um, and I think that's totally true. There is a negative side to cultural fractioning, fracturing, right? Like mm -hmm. we don't have a pop culture anymore, actually. I, I would argue like maybe Game of Thrones was the the only yeah, a lot thing of people the say last, that the like, last, yeah. and then maybe before that, Sopranos, although Sopranos was very, still very niche. Um, mm -hmm. Even though I think it's much better. Don't get me wrong. I'm not comparing them in terms of like literary merit or, or artistic merit. I'm just, uh, we don't have, that's really has been one of the um, consequences for good or ill of the internet, right? It's that no matter what weird little thing you're into, you can find the seven other people in the world um, who are into that same thing, which is on the one hand, wonderful and community building and, and, um, allows people to go deeply into something they interest are interested in, um, with, with a, a community of fellows. It's, it also fractures that space where we need, um, to interact with people who are different from us. Right. Um, yeah. so here I'm thinking like, <laughs> There are downsides to having this kind of pop culture, but the upside is everyone was watching Muhammad Ali, right? Mm -hmm. um, watching those fights in America. And that brings people together who are very different. Uh, and and I think that that is also a, a force that we're now missing. We're completely sort of fractured um, culturally. And it makes it very difficult to build a nation. Right? It makes it more difficult to build a neighborhood, more difficult to build a nation, especially when people find out that they might have more in common with someone in Timbuktu because they both love this like one weird thing. And in particular, when elites of different nations find out they have more in common with each other than yeah. they do with their neighbors. <laughs> and so I, I think there are downsides to this, this kind of fracturing, but it definitely has personal upsides. Yeah. Mark Fisher is wrong a lot of, about a lot of things because he was a communist, but he was right about this. Like his best observation was, uh, that the, the, uh, the fact that all of these cultures are now available continuously, that all all these different 
decades and eras of music and movies and, and all this stuff is simultaneously available is that you don't have one forged shared culture anymore. People can escape into micro niche subcultures or, you know, every, you can go back and just listen to metal from the eighties or, you know, listen to pop music from the nineties or only watch movies from the sixties. And you don't actually have to care about what your culture is producing now, because there's just this, uh, this simultaneously existent uh, backlog of culture that, you know, anyone can escape to and not actually interface with the real world, which, which is its own issue for sure. It also completely breaks down this distinction between culture and counterculture, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and here I think Polya was very prophetic. Um, but there there are there are things um, that have always happened, and it, here I think the best example is kind of sexual minorities, right? Um, it, it's not that homosexuality is a new thing under the sun. It's not even a new thing under the sun that there are men uh, who get their sexual thrills by dressing like women, right? This is very clearly a phenomenon in all societies, virtually. Um, the, the differences between the mainstream and the counterculture, right? We mm -hmm. had these countercultures, some of them very degenerate and some of them producing some beautiful art actually, right? Like, um, and I think for example, uh, gay life in the 1980s in New York City is very much uh, one of an example of this, right? Where it's, it's actually, I think that there is a benefit um, to the, those cultures existing as subcultures, as countercultures. Um, but the problem is there's no barrier now between the the um, mainstream and and the counterculture because every every little faction has to be um, not in specifics but like in essence endorsed by everyone everyone's little weirdness and identity um, there are no weirdos anymore you're not allowed to be like a freak or a weirdo or like and just exist outside of culture those things must be embraced by Delta right. Yeah. Um, and I think that is bad for both sides of the equation. Like, I, I think it's bad when gay pride parades are endorsed by Delta. And I, I think it's actually bad not only for the children watching, um, but it's bad for gay culture when when Delta endorses it and it becomes sort of bland and corporatized and loses that like that sense of rebellion and and limitation of the the uh, the rest of society that places barriers around it that therefore engenders a certain amount of creativity and here I really sound like Camille Paglia but so well I think I it, it's a, <laughs> well I I think there is I, I think there's an observable phenomenon there that I think a lot of people can understand I mean just ask uh, all these subcultures that have been now co-opted by you know the gamer gates and the the comic book gates and you know all these all, all these different fandoms who you know maybe live their whole life saying oh man i can't wait till someone makes a movie about my thing until they and now the people who were the core audience of those things have been completely you know derided and tossed out of their own subculture because that culture had to be you know, made safe and 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 pasteurized and and homogenized so that it could be, then be you know elevated and served up to the wider the wider culture, right? Like those niches are no longer allowed to exist with their own interests and their own standards. They have to be all the indoctrination has to be poured into those areas so they can then be brought and made wide to to everybody else. So I, I think there's a lot of truth there, uh, Johan. Richardson for $20 says, uh, what role does a demography play in changes in the young if the portion of the young are less and less the long-term heirs of the first world civilization? Will the odds uh, be tilted against the pre uh, preserving the first world social structures? I mean, th that's a really good question. I think there is definitely 
you know, an observable phenomenon of a lot of native people in, you know, first world culture saying it's not worth, you know, participating anymore, especially as again, we see the incentive structure specifically created to say, actually, we're going to elevate everyone who isn't you. And you're going to have to, you know, justify all of your actions in every situation that you didn't, you know, transgress some new cultural faux pas while trying to do the job and preserve these different systems, I think there is an understandable, you know, walking away of many people from the need to kind of maintain the systems that are holding up a culture that they no longer see themselves reflected in. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true, but I think the answers are different to this question in the U S versus Europe. Um, so I, I, I think that that's because America is really, really assimilatory. Um, and the problem is not so much. So I, I guess maybe I depart from some people on the right. Uh, I don't think that America's ability to assimilate immigrants has actually gotten much worse. I think we're just simply assimilating them to a dominant ideology of America, which is wokeism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, um, I, I, I think that actually we are quite assimilatory still. And in fact, we're projecting that culture around the world uh, because we do have an empire. And, sure. and it's a cultural empire. Yep. Um, and so now we are exporting uh, this ideology just as we are assimilating our immigrants to it at home. And I, so I, I tend to think like, yes, you can talk about perhaps, um, you know, changing the demographics of the vote empowered specifically the Democratic Party that, that then passes these laws, but they're almost tangential within the party, right? That break from immigrant vote to like woke policies it's running through a democratic party that's controlled largely not by, by people uh, who just came to this country. Right. Um, and so they might have some, some ideas about government programs and wanting benefits and maybe don't have the same kind of, um, you know, culture of self-government as, as Americans have. Uh, but what's actually coming out on the other end, I think has much less to do with immigrants. And in fact, it's assimilating their children, uh, aggressively so in europe it's i think it's quite different um you have kind of the two extremes in europe where uh i would say like for example in france you just have a large unassimilated minority uh to that france has very little interest in assimilating but is now outbreeding them right mm -hmm. um and then in in the uk they've bent over backwards to assimilate their their immigrants um completely to the point where they like disavow everything about British culture um, and, and have also not successfully, I don't think, um, assimilated their immigrants because they've just assimilated. <laughs> I was going to say that that's the, right? the inverse. They haven't assimilated anyone. They've been assimilated. Yeah. So I, I think these, yeah. these questions are quite different. So on the global scale, obviously in the same vein as what can't go on forever uh, won't eventually mm -hmm. some civilization will conquer another. I mean, um, if, if we don't continue to produce this much wealth, um, I think we will be conquered eventually. Uh, but but on the the sort of shorter time scale, I actually think this 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 ideology and all of the power structures that we were talking about for the last hour, I think they are powerful enough to assimilate immigrants too. It's just assimilating it into something Americans from 40 years ago wouldn't recognize. Sure, but I guess that doesn't really address the issue of those left behind by the assimilation, right? All those who are being pushed out of those positions because the 
structural incentives are to make sure that those assimilated peoples are moved into positions of power and in institutional structural advantage, right? So you're right. Like, I, I think that's 100% correct that, that the U.S. is very good at this. But the people who are the victims of this are those who are being displaced by it, as it always is. And those who are constantly the same people who are being dismissed, you know, oh, they took our jobs as the joke. Like, but yeah, but you don't have your jobs anymore. So actually, that is a problem. Right. So I think you're right that the U.S. is very good at, the, at this at this point. But that only emphasizes the issue. It doesn't solve it. Well, and what you see is the needs, right? Um, yeah. The, you, you see people drop out. In fact, so Nicholas Everstadt has some great work um, on this, but the, the rise of working age, and it is primarily men, right? Um, for all kinds of reasons, these developments have been better for women, at least materially, um, have been better for women materially than for men. But uh, what we're seeing is working class men of primary working age uh, dropping out and um, largely either existing on um, welfare benefits or on side income um, that is illegally generated and largely uh, getting dying deaths of despair, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, getting addicted to pain medication or becoming alcoholics. Um, and in some sense, that's maybe that's just like, that's just good for, uh, not for, for us, um, but for this managerial class, right? Because this is the same, Silicon Valley's solution to this is give UBI. Right. Yep. Give people UVI, give them porn, give them, um, you know, give them pain meds easily, legalize all the drugs and let them die deaths of despair at 45 and they won't cause us any trouble. Yep. I think that is unfortunately very much their approach. Well, skeptical panda, I'm sorry. I've just, we've just failed you here, but, uh, uh, hi, Inez and Oren. Good to see another based guest on the show. Remember, no black pills. Uh, well, you know, we try we try to keep uh, as positive an outlook as possible. But if you're looking for no black pills, you might you might have come to the wrong. <laughs> to the I, I still I, I still think that that uh, there could be a populist revolution um, in the United States. So here's your your white pill. There you go. Okay. Stuff. Um, I, I still think that's possible. There there have been, uh, in my estimation, four successful populist revolts uh in american history um the the first being under andrew jackson um and that resulted in something that i think is very relevant to our times rotation in office meaning bureaucrats and it started the patronage system that lasted throughout most of the 19th century was very effectively used by the lincoln administration uh but was then derisively called the spoil system okay but that that started under jackson it was a major and also jackson killed the bank right so two major structural victories of the Jacksonian populist movement um, that had effects that lasted for a century. Um, I think the next one was under FDR, really. Um, and that had incredible structural effects and lasting effects, right? You're talking about the, the creation of social security, um, the creation of, of the, the, the welfare state in, in large part, um, the total transformation of the constitutional system of the United States. Um, so I think a lot of those things were bad, but uh, that that was uh, a lasting impact that we see today, right? Um, and then the, the last two, so I think the jury's still out about the last two, is the Reagan revolution was a populist revolution. Um, I think that largely, it was successful in that it placed a, president's, a president in the White House. I think it was largely unsuccessful in terms of changing the trajectory. It basically stopped everything 
um, but didn't, as Reagan said, didn't really reinstitutionalize anything. And the institutions continued to to drift left and exercise power. And now we are where we are. Um, and I also, obviously, the jury's still out on 2016. It seems like it failed to me. Um, but the the point being, these these movements have succeeded in American history. They have made structural changes. Um, and I think some of the structural changes that would mark it as successful for me would be a serious, some kind of serious knife in the heart of the university system as a pipeline to power, right? Um, and I think that could come in a variety of different policy ways. Um, my own personal sort of thing that I'm stumping for right now uh, is to use the student loan crisis to uh, heavily tax the universities to pay off student loans. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that has a lot of benefits, but one of them is that it would be very expensive for universities and make it very difficult for them to continue on the trajectory that they're on. Um, and, and another thing is we, we like what I would call a success is some kind of gutting of the administrative state um, or at minimum exerting political control over the administrative state so that when a president who has populist uh, concerns or orientation like Donald Trump is elected, uh, that he actually does control the power of the state. Um, and I think that could come through merit reform in terms of like being able to fire people, Trump's famous Schedule F policy, it, but it applies only to uh, about 50,000 people at the top. There are 2.8 million civilian bureaucrats. Um, but some kind of serious gutting of the administrative state, and then some kind of, of either gutting or convincing away from this current path of, of um, tech and woke capital. So those would be, I think, three, and I'm sure you could add some more of that, but I, I would say that progress or like structural change mm -hmm. on, on those three sectors, um, I would consider that a success. And I think we could set ourselves up in such a way that the American Republic can kind of digest younger millennials and Gen Z as, as a generation um, with certain structural changes that make limitations on how much they can wield their power. Um, and then obviously we have to stop the pipeline on the other end. So if you have to get control of the education system, but anyway, I think it's possible. It's, it's an uphill battle, but I do think it's possible. I don't think it's like, I mean, Amer Americans are pretty, I don't want to swear, pretty remarkable people in the history of the world. Still, um, the fact that every single institution, um, including me, I, I didn't vote for anyone in 2016, uh, but every every single institution in American life uh, told every single American relentlessly that you're a bad person if you vote for Donald Trump, and they did. Um, the American middle class is not a bunch of Russian peasants. Uh, they are used to having a certain standard of living. Um, they are used to having a certain amount of control over their lives. Uh, and I do think there will be a pretty substan substantive rebellion against the direction of this country. Whether or not it succeeds, I don't know. But I do think there will be some kind of real teeth rebellion at some point. Because Americans aren't used to, I, I think large, uh, to a large degree, Americans are not used to being treated like serfs. I believe that before COVID. I have a harder time. I have a harder time justifying that belief now. But I hear you. the The solutions are uh, the the things you identified as victories are certainly correct. I think those are all valuable things that would make a significant difference. Uh, ben G here for five dollars. Nothing has changed for the positive uh, positive with the Republican Party since the events that Sam Francis talks about in the King Holiday. 
I know that essay is in Beautiful Losers, but I and I've, I've of course I've read it at some point. I just don't have all the points of that essay to mind. I wish I did so I could give you more of an answer on that right away, but I, I can't immediately remember all of the points he's made in there. I mean, I have a general idea of what he said, but uh, I can't really go through all of them for you there. Sorry about that, Ben, but but I appreciate it. Um, let's I see. Know. I don't know it either, so I can't, yeah. <laughs> can't comment. Yeah, like I said, I, I read it somewhere in the middle of Beautiful Losers, but I, I can't I can't remember all the points at the moment. Uh, my tube uh, for 199. Thank you very much. The right loses because it lacks vision and spine. Well, that is certainly true. Um, yeah, I, I think there are people. I think also vision and spine were beaten out of the right uh, on a pretty regular basis. Uh, I think the excommunication of many thought leaders uh, was intentional, uh, and the selling of kind of a controlled opposition was. Uh, you know, has been there for a while. Uh, so I don't think that's a, a unique feature of the right so much as, as something that was, you know, desired. Uh, but I do think that is a big problem for the right. And I think you are seeing people recognizing that problem. I think there are people actively taking action. The fact that you even have a fight over a speaker uh, with the right right now probably means that there are people taking notice of that. But you are right that that is a co very consistent issue. Uh, let's see here. Uh, emergent perspective for $10. Do you think the internet allowing woke ideas to go way off the rails, i.e. Tumblr, may have backfired? Would the elite have preferred to go slowly via MSM evening news uh, deployment mechanism? Uh, possibly. So again, this is, so speaking of Sam Francis, this is something that Francis talks about in Leviathan and Zen Enemies. He says that basically the, the managerial class and the left vanguard had more or less the same uh, desires that had the same end goals, but that the, uh, the, the Vanguard wanted to go far too fast, the fast, the manager elite realized that they needed to boil the frog slower. And so that's why they looked like enemies when they were actually allies. And that's why the Vanguard has become more and more okay where the manager elite are because they've kind of caught up with the eventual goals of the Vanguard. And that's why it seems like there's less tension between say like the corporate press and, and uh, you know, uh, left-wing uh, Vanguard movements. Um, they, I think they're okay. Uh, I think the, the, at this point, the corporations and, and most of the managers have bought in, they've drank the Kool-Aid on the woke stuff. Uh, they probably still don't want to completely kill uh, the golden goose with this. They are holding back things some, uh, but I think at this point they're kind of up to speed with the cultural revolution. And uh, so maybe they would have preferred to have uh, more of a slow drip, but they haven't wasted much time in kind of onboarding a lot of this stuff, uh, which is why we have kind of the the corporate bloat of wokeness and patronage networks that we do today. Uh, the left is also really good at taking essentially plateau moments um, for the radicalism of whatever they've done to be absorbed by the American public and to absorb mm. a backlash. Um, here I'm thinking about more public policy than like internet versus traditional media. But um, the, I mean, you, you can look at it as there's, there's been a backlash against each one of these major structural changes, um, quite powerful ones that elected Republicans. And now we're back to the uselessness of doing that. Um, but those changes have not been institutional. And the left is very, very good at, I, I think, and I don't want to imply even that it's like somebody sitting at the top thinking like, uh, we just need to absorb this. But because they have institutional power uh, and the right doesn't, they have the the, the um, advantage of time, right? 
-hmm. If we do, if we freeze everything right now, we've passed no new policy, nothing happens, they win. So I think that's the advantage of, of owning the institutions. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, uh, Douglas, uh, you have a very long time, Douglas. So I'm just going to go with Douglas there. Thank you very much for your donation. It sounds like a fancy way of saying biolinism is a thing. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly when you entered that uh, remark, so I'm not sure exactly when when you referenced that. But uh, yeah, that that is definitely something that you could probably categorize in this discussion. Thank you very much. And then uh, Dante's uh, Cacostrum. Uh, why can't I say this now? Uh, <laughs> Cacistocracy. There we go. I did it. Uh, thank you for your donation. Huh? I thought it was Cacistocracy. Yeah, from the Greek, you know, but, meaning. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, 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 it's more legitimate than that. I thought it was a joke. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, do, do you think the public will comply if lockdowns are imposed again? Yeah, I think they will. Um, I, Maybe that's the difference. I, I don't. I think nothing has trashed like openly trashed the power of the institutions and made it more brittle as much as, as this, mm -hmm. um, even in New York city where I live. Right. Um, I think it would be very, very difficult to reimpose lockdowns, maybe not impossible, but I mean, even trying to reimpose a mask mandate, I see largely failing in New York city. Now I think it would probably be possible in Washington DC and in my hometown of San Francisco. Um, yes, but we have entire States now that would, I mean, I, I just, I think, I think pandemic is a, a again, a black swan event. Um, and I think that largely people more or less trusted their institutions, um, even as they were disappointed over time in this kind of quiet way. But I think the pandemic really showed the rot. And I, I, I would be surprised if there's uniform lockdowns. You might see them in like one place or another, but I would be really surprised to see them broad based. And maybe I'm wrong. But we'll see which one, uh, which one of us is, is if, if the white pill or the black pill uh, version wins. Well, I, I think you're right that it's a mask off moment, uh, not not to create any puns there. I think you're right that it is a moment that reveals the rot um, and does fracture faith in the institutions. And in that case, in that way, it is that part of it is valuable. Um, but if do I think that you could see that kind of thing attempted to be reapplied and probably successfully reapplied in, in a good chunk of the country. I, I do think that there probably is still enough institutional momentum to get that through one more time. Uh, but you are right that every time they do try to do that, the, the intention, the attempt to flex that kind of raw power does cost them something. Well, and, and the federalist system is going to help us here. And yes, if you compare, right um, if you compare the, the responses in, in European countries um, to the United States, uh, I think theirs is better in some ways and ours is better in other ways. Their experts are a little bit more legit in the sense that when the data strongly moved in one direction, there was some acknowledgement of that in the professional structures. Uh, for example, uh, you know, and, and I hear, for example, get out of Europe uh, in Israel, right? Israel went really, really hard on lockdowns. They instituted vaccine mandates up to the, the second booster. Um, and then publicly announced, this isn't working. We're rolling all of this back. Um, so in that sense, their expert class, I think, is still a little bit more actually scientific, which mm -hmm. is not to say that it solves some of these deeper questions of political power and judgment. Um, in America, our expert class is worse um, and more ideological and more useless. 
Uh, and I don't think you'll ever see our expert class walk back anything like that. I don't think you'll ever see announcement like that in America um, where you have like the head of the CDC saying we screwed it up. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the federalist system here means that we have a counterexample. The fact that Florida exists is incredibly important because now we have a counterexample to say, because otherwise, if everybody does the same thing, right, you have no way of knowing what the outcomes would be if, if you had done it differently. But the fact that we have counterexamples and the fact that the, the federalist system did hold up in this largely, right, um, where you had very different paths taken in different states. Um, that I think like like Americans largely lock down a lot less than most European countries um, on average. So anyway, I think the federalist system was an enormous advantage to us in this. I think it really proved the the wisdom of the federalist system. Well, as a Floridian, I certainly benefited from from that and, and very grateful for uh, for its restrictions in that way. All right, guys. Well, I think we got through all of the questions. Want to go ahead and thank everyone for coming by. And as where can everyone find your work? Do you have anything exciting people can check out coming up? Anything like that? Um, you can find my work at IWF.org, um, along with those of my colleagues at Independent Women's Forum. Um, and I also am affiliated with a bunch of other folks. Um, I you can find most of my stuff on Twitter. Honestly, I, I tweet a lot. I'm <laughs> too much. Uh, and it's at Inez Felcher, F-E-L-T-S-C-H-E-R. But you can put in Stepman as well. That's my married name. I just actually maybe now I can change it because I wasn't allowed to change the at handle. Um, oh, okay. Because I was going to lose the check mark. I got it when like they were actually still giving check marks to the right. Um, yeah, maybe I can change it now. But that's that's my at handle. Uh, and um, you can find a lot of my work at various sort of conservative outlets. Excellent. So make sure to check that out, guys. And of course, if this is your first time here, make sure that you are subscribing. And uh, also remember, guys, that you can now listen to the show as a podcast, not just as the live stream. So if you want to go and subscribe, it's on all the major podcast platforms. Make sure when you do, you leave that uh, rating and that review that really helps a lot with all the algorithms and everything. I also went ahead and released uh, my latest chapter of The Total State. Chapter 5 just went up on uh, the Substack. So if you want to go over there, you can read the whole thing. That one's free for everybody. Uh, so if you want to read the latest chapter there as well. Oh, we have one more chat that came in right here. Uh, let's see. Oh, I see we have uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe, a fan here. Uh, Phil, $10, any right-wing political pan uh, win that does not include the physical removal of post-65ers is a loss. Yeah, I... I hear you, but I don't know that that's in the cards. I, I don't, uh, I don't know about the prospect of that one, buddy. But uh, anyway, all right. So let's go ahead and wrap this up, guys. Thanks again, everyone, for coming by. And as always, I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for having me on. <laughs>